My entire family used to go out uh, stargazing. My father would point out the different stars and planets and constellations. I was always fascinated by spaceflight. I loved airplanes, I loved rockets. I read every single book in my elementary school library about the subject. And I remember also my parents and their friends getting very excited about the Apollo program. I was pretty young. I was six years old. It was, uh, of course, it was July of 1969. Just like most people around the world, I was glued to a TV set. I was absolutely convinced that by the time I was an adult, everyone would be flying in space. We'd all have our flying cars, and everyone would be traveling to space just like you would on a commercial airline. And I thought the astronauts were the coolest people around. I thought they were cooler than any athletes or musicians or anyone else. You know, these guys were it. So I wanted to grow up to be like them. Hi, I'm Chris Marshall, and this is For All Mankind, the official podcast. So many kids dream of putting on a helmet and flying into space. But what does it take to actually become an astronaut? On today's episode, I'll speak with a few former astronauts who will share stories about what real ASCANs, or astronaut candidates, go through in order to become spaceflight ready. From bolting across the sky in a T-38 jet, to long treks across the harsh desert. You know, I never thought I could become one. I realized I could apply to become one, but applying and getting picked is two very different things. That was Mike Massimino, professor of mechanical engineering at Columbia University and a former NASA astronaut. Mike was just a kid during the Apollo 11 mission that put boots on the moon for the very first time. I was six years old. It was, uh, of course, it was July of 1969. Just like most people around the world, I was glued to a TV set, and we had one uh, a black and white model in, uh, in the living room of my uh, house in Long Island. But I thought it was the most important thing that's ever happened, ever. So he set off to become an astronaut himself. There are a few requirements you have to meet to qualify for NASA's Astronaut Candidate Training Program. In 1959, when the program first began, only military pilots in excellent physical condition were considered. You also had to literally fit inside a small cabin of the newly designed capsule, so only those under 5'11 could apply. Sorry, tall people, no space for you. Those criteria have evolved over the years. Today, in addition to being a US citizen, you also have to, one, have a degree in a STEM subject like engineering or computer science, Two, have a few years of professional experience in that field of study, or a thousand hours in a jet aircraft. And three, pass something called the NASA Long Duration Flight Astronaut Physical Exam. Mike Massimino was rejected a few times during the application process. The first time I applied, I got a rejection letter, same thing the second time. And was even medically disqualified for not having perfect eyesight. Back then, you had to still see pretty well without contacts or glasses on. I failed the exam. What I ended up doing was looking into it a little more and found out about something called vision training. So I trained my eyes and my brain with the help of an optometrist who specialized in this and uh, was able to requalify. That didn't give me any guarantees, but at least I could try again. Garrett Reisman, former NASA astronaut and technical consultant on For All Mankind, shared his interview story with me. Okay, so a lot of people apply. Uh, it, the number is since, since like, social media and since now it's all you can apply online i think now they're getting something like twenty thousand applications wow and they typically pick like about 10. wow so the odds are like not 
not good. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so before you become an ass can, you're what we call an ass ho. (laughs) (laughs) It stands for astronaut hopeful. Okay, got it. (laughs) And that's that's before you get selected. So you're it's during the interview process when you're trying to go from ass ho to ass can. Uh, is is an interview. Mm-hmm. You walk into a room, and it's all the most senior astronauts in the office sitting around this table. They stick you in this in the corner of the T, and you're sitting right across the table from the most senior astronaut. And I knew I was not going to be able to impress him by telling him I was captain of my high school wrestling team. It's not going to fly. <laughs> so I walk in there, and the first thing he says to me was like, hey, Garrett, uh, how's the week going? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, sir, you know, so far, not bad. In fact, it's going a lot better than my last job interview. And he goes, oh, really? Uh, why is why is that? And I said, well, because I remembered my pants for this one. <laughs> Apparently, Garrett had forgotten to pat slacks for that other interview and had to rock a pair of powder blue jeans along with his dress shirt and tie. And you didn't get the job. I did get the job because you know why? It's a bunch of engineers. They don't care what you wear. <laughs> they, they ain't got no style. Classic Garrett. Not everyone who ends up at NASA actually applies to be there. This was the case with Joan Higginbotham, former astronaut and the third African-American woman to fly into space. Joan found her way to NASA through what she calls a twist of fate. As I was about to graduate, I did interview with IBM, but they were not hiring engineers. But they said, look, we will give you your choice of 10 cities where you can come on and be a sales rep. And when we start hiring engineers, we'll just move you over into engineering. So while I was mulling over this offer, so I'm in my dorm room one day and I get a call from a gentleman at NASA uh, from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And he says, hey, I have your resume here and it looks really good. You think you want to come work for us? And I'm like, who are you? Knowing that I didn't reach out to NASA, I just, yeah, I was like, okay, someone's trying to punk me. But he, he assured me he was legit. Joan had her doubts. She didn't grow up dreaming of going to space like so many others. And he said, well, how about if you come out to Florida and see Mm. the operations? So that's what I did. After all of the applying, the waiting, the rejections, the reapplying, the medical screenings, the interviews, after all of that, all applicants are notified of the outcome. And those who make the program get the astronaut call. Kay Heyer, former NASA astronaut, was already working at the Kennedy Space Center as a shuttle engineer when she got her call. I was supervisor of the orbiter mechanical systems and the launch pad swing arms. And I was actually interviewing candidates for a lead position within my division. And my phone kept ringing and I kept just kind of turning it off and Eventually, you know, I had people come and banging on the door, (laughs) said, they're really trying to get a hold of you. (laughs) So I said, I didn't know what it was about. I didn't expect that was the astronaut call, but that was it. So it was a bit of a shock and it does kind of make your head spin because you realize that your life had absolutely changed in that moment. Getting the call doesn't mean you're an astronaut. Not in the slightest. It means you're an astronaut candidate. Or an ASCAN. Just as my character heard in season one, the new chief astronaut, Ed Baldwin, played by the very talented Joel Kinnaman, who we'll hear from in a bit, trots out the very same welcome speech. Welcome to NASA. 
You are, as of this moment, officially astronaut candidates. Affectionately referred to from this point on as ASCANS. <laughs> now, this is a rigorous 24-7 training program preparing you for space travel. I'll be grading you as we go, and everything you do will be graded. Academics, pilot performance, your character and motivation. I'll be posting results from time to time in the hall outside. If your name's not on that list, well, you're cut. cut. For the next two years, ASCANS developed the knowledge and skills required for flying in space. Like Joel's character says, the astronaut training program is broken down into a few different categories. Academics, pilot performance, character, and motivation. To Mike Massimino, the academics are like astronaut college. You learn a little bit about astronomy, a little bit about geology and teamwork and things like that. You hear a lot of, a lot of interesting people come and speak to your class too. So it was really quite uh, an enriched couple of years of training that was really fun. Fun, but challenging. There's a lot to learn. For example, the shuttle crew operating manual is 1,196 pages long. You have this big binder, and then you have all these other smaller manuals for each of the systems on the shuttle. And at that time, we were about to start putting the space station in orbit. So not only did we have to go through space shuttle training, we had to go through space station training. Our class was the first one to go through that. And it was really interesting because they were still developing some of the systems. So as we were learning the systems on station, the instructors would say, so this is the way it is now. It'll probably be different by the time you fly. <laughs> so I'm thinking, then why that's, are you teaching that's this comforting. to me? <laughs> Kay Heyer, who had gone to the Navy at 17 and earned her naval flight officer wings, had so much training under her belt already. But it's different translating that experience to space. So I had done a lot of, let's say, parachute training and bailout training and, and um on my own recreationally, I had been a scuba diver. So this was like, you know, masterclass level of all of that. And it, it was very serious training, but yet this is now with my fr new friends. It's like the best adult camp ever, you know, getting to do all these like, exciting things. And we used to kind of call it, oh, I had a good astronaut day if like maybe in the morning you were in the simulator and then you uh, did a, you know, got to do a briefing for your going into uh, the pool the next day and the EMU for the spacewalk training. And then maybe in the afternoon you went and flew the, the T-38. That would be what we called a fine astronaut day. To foster the kind of teamwork needed to work and live in extreme conditions, NASA sends ASCANs out on adventures. Some go sea kayaking, others might climb a mountain. We talk about expeditionary behavior in episode two of the podcast. I actually got a little taste of this during season one of the show. Our writers thought it would be more compelling to make it a solo exercise, but Joan tells me that that is not the case in real ASCAN training. It's never an individual exercise because they don't want anybody to die. It's always, like, it's always a team thing because you're never going to be by yourself. It's always about team dynamics. <laughs> so our crew, once we got assigned, we went on NOLS, National Outdoor Leadership Series. And let me just tell you. So my idea of roughing it is like a three-star hotel, right? So I was not <laughs> It's a La Quinta near the exit. <laughs> I was not feeling going to the Canyonlands in Moab, Utah for nine days and living uh -uh. off the land. Mm -mm. 
and my commander, being the very um, driven guy that he is, we were going to do a 12-mile hike that day uh, mm. so that we could get to this point so that the next day we could rappel down a 150-foot cliff. And, and there's this picture, little me, I'm like five, three and a half, and my backpack was about six inches over the top of my head. And, you know, we did the 12-mile hike, and the next day we got up and went to the place where we were going to rappel down. I swear, if there was another way down, I would have taken the stairs, right? <laughs> but I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. So I obviously was not going first. I let, like, two crew people go first. As I'm going down, I'm like, my mother's going to get you guys for this. I just want you to know. I am from Chicago. I am not used to this. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was pretty cool. And uh, and at the end, we all got evaluations. And, and mine said, we know this is not your forte, but you know, we admire you for, you know, sticking to it and giving it everything you got and kicking butt. I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm not going to let it defeat me. I don't have to like it. There are a lot of training experiences like that in the ASCAM program. Ones that immerse you in unfamiliar or harsh environments to simulate what you'd experience in space. For example, ASCANs go for a ride in the Vomit Comet. Okay, NASA doesn't call it that. It's formally known as the Zero-G Plane or the Parabolic Flight. It's a wild plane ride with large altitude rises and drops, giving passengers about 20 to 30 seconds to experience microgravity similar to being in outer space. I don't think I'd try it. But Kay Heyer was a fan. She'd compare it to the feeling you get when riding a roller coaster. So I'm one of those kids that loved roller coasters. The bigger, the faster, those were the ones I I still I still love those. But you get very small little um, burst of when you come over the top and you're in a little bit of a free fall and you also get to experience G's when you pull out at the bottom. And that's what uh, the zero-G training was like at the top. It's like when you're coming over the top of the roller coaster and you're coming up out of your seat a little bit, except for it lasts for 30 seconds. Now, at the bottom, there's the pullout, and uh, you need to get in a safe position because you're going to get squished down with a few Gs as they pull the aircraft back up to get back up to the top, if you will, of the roller coaster. Another way to simulate microgravity is in a giant swimming pool. In water, we know things will still sink. Of course, if you throw a rock, it's going to go to the bottom of the ocean, but things also float, right? So what we do is we try to balance out the buoyancy force with the gravity force using a combination of weights and flotation with the help of divers that help us with this so that we're floating in the water column, neutrally buoyant. Astronaut candidates use the Neutral Buoyancy Lab to learn how to move and operate the spacesuit, which weighs about 280 pounds. There are actually a few different kinds of spacesuits. This really heavy one is called the EMU, or the Extravehicular Mobility Unit. And it's what astronauts on the ISS use to perform tasks outside the station. But it's the big white spacesuit that we spacewalk in, and it's quite heavy and uh, pretty bulky. It allows you to work really well in zero gravity. And one of the things that uh, made it more bulky is that in zero gravity, when we're in orbit, you're traveling very fast. You're traveling at 17,500 miles an hour. And if you were to encounter any piece of debris or micrometeorite or anything like that, that would be bad. Going at that speed, hitting anything it is not a good thing. So it's got layers to it, including a layer of Kevlar to protect you. 
A lot of times we'll run through what our, our training run is going to be in the suit. We'll do that maybe in scuba gear first just to get uh, used to it and go through the motions and become familiar with the task. Kay Heyer already had a leg up, as she had been familiar with scuba diving before entering the program. The suit, uh, when you first get into it, feels cumbersome and awkward and very heavy and, and restricting your movements. After a while, just like with anything else that you practice and train with, uh, you become accustomed to the suit and accustomed to what you can and, and cannot do, your capabilities and your limitations, I should say. And the same thing with the launch and entry suit. At first, you put that on and you're all strapped in into the seat and doing the training, thinking, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to reach all these switches and circuit breakers. But after a while, it becomes just second nature. The first class of astronauts were military test pilots, because that seemed like an obvious qualification. If you're going to fly to the moon, you need someone to pilot the ship, right? While you don't necessarily need your pilot's license to qualify for the program, flying is still a big part of ASCAN training, because even if you're not the one driving, you still need to know the basics. Some of my classmates were military test pilots who had a lot of the training already, but most of us were civilians who never flew in high-performance jets before. In order to fly in it, you had to go through training in order to know how to get out of the airplane safely. So we did things like land survival training, water survival training, and parachute training. And then we got some initial intro to the airplane, and, and we started flying. The standard plane to learn in was, and still is, the T-38. The T in the T-38 stands for trainer, as opposed to F for fighter or other designations in the military system. But it's not a very big airplane compared to other military airplanes. It's just two people and it's meant for trainings. You're gonna be up typically about an hour at a time from takeoff to landing to the final full stop. It's kind of small, but also very maneuverable. That made it so you could go, it was really sleek, could go fast, uh, could go Mach 1, but not for very long because that took a lot of fuel. Mach 1 is the speed of sound, by the way. We had a practice area out of Houston on, in the Gulf of Mexico, and we could uh, do all kinds of aerobatics and chase each other and stuff like that in those airplanes. You could do all kinds of rolls and loops and air combat maneuvers and high G turns and go weightless for a little while and break the sound barrier and do all these things. So, and it was fun, you know, the, typically the pilot in front, the pilot in command would demonstrate something and and then I'd give it a try. On For All Mankind, when astronauts Ed Baldwin and Gordo Stevens need to get to Cape Canaveral, they suit up, get into their T-38s, and do a bit of dogfighting along the way. Sorry, sailor, saw that coming. Time to eat your lunch. Pippers on. Fox 2. That's all she wrote, buddy. <laughs> we call that a clean kill. We call it dumb luck, Gordo. So here's what's wild. My castmate Joel has really taken a shine to this whole astronaut thing. So much so that he started learning to fly for real. I talked to him about his first lesson. You know, actually, I'm uh, I'm getting my pilot certificate. That's what Garrett told me. I heard that. Yeah. Okay, so that's more than just watching stuff and talking to people. You're doing yeah, something. Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I started flying. Okay, so how many hours have you flown so far? Uh, I don't know, what is it, maybe 8, 10, something like oh that. Oh my God, that's a uh, lot. Okay. Yeah, it's not. You know, the, my first flight ended with the emergency landing. Shut up. 
Yeah. Wait, it's okay. So you have to tell me this story. What happened? Thank God it ended well. Jesus, we almost uh, no. lost you. I'd have to play Ed Baldwin. Uh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so I was flying this, you know, very particular plane that I actually want to get after I get a pilot certificate. It's a plane called Cirrus 22. Garrett has that plane too. So I'm, I'm taking off in this plane, uh, you know, and he actually, you know, lets me take off and uh, and we're flying out of Santa Monica Airport and we fly around out to, to Point Doom. And then I'm in the middle of like doing, the, I'm doing my first turns and I'm like, oh man, this is like, um, it's amazing. I mean, it's such a great feeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, I, I was really like, just my whole body was just like tingling. It was a euphoric, really euphoric experience. I'm doing like a 180 turn right over Point Doom outside of Mal- in Malibu. There is some turbulence, and then all of a sudden, there's like this big turbulent dip. Mm-mm, so no, no, no. Um, <laughs> and um, and and my my instructor, he, he was also he's also a tall guy. These planes aren't really made for tall guys. Our heads are real close to the ceiling, and um, and we have this big dip. And and he goes, <laughs> you don't want you don't want your flight instructor on your maiden flight to go, holy. Sh- <laughs> and uh, and he was like, uh, I think I think I think a hatch open. I think a hatch open. There's some air coming in, and then he starts like calling. Um, like he was like, Santa Monica Airport. Yeah, yeah. We have, I think we have a hatch open. <laughs> they prepared for an emergency landing. Oh my was, like, god! We're heading back. We're heading back to, to the airport. And I see the guy. He's like sweating, and his eyes are like beady. You know, even if something was happening, mm-hmm. he got to f- hold on to your emotions better than this. Like you can have a student in the plane and you're freaking out. And and I was more worried that this guy was having a panic attack and wasn't going to be able to land the plane properly. Right. Because I was like, even if a hatch opened, like, would that be dangerous? Yeah, would it? Right. I mean, we're not. Yeah. But but also, like, I don't. What sure. do I know? I'm right. a dummy. I've never been in, you know, in an airplane before. But. Um, but we land and everything's fine. Because the whole flight was like, what, 15 minutes? I mean, you guys had just left. Yeah, it was, a, yeah, maybe a half an hour. So, okay, so even after your brush with death, with the hatch opening, uh, your imaginary <laughs> hatch open, you still want to yeah. continue to learn to fly. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I made a point to myself. I walked in and then I just immediately bought 10 lessons. Wow. Uh, 10 hours. I was like, I need to like counter this feeling right now. Yeah. Yeah, so super, super fun. My plan is to have it done before we finish the third season. So you can fly yourself to the season three premiere uh-huh. and just land on the red carpet. <laughs> Space, the last frontier, the great unknown, and the most wholly unnatural place for a human to venture. It's no wonder it takes years to be ready for it. To travel among the stars is to defy the very laws of nature. But even after all the training and preparation, Joan tells me that nothing can prepare you for seeing that pale blue dot in the rearview mirror. The first day, you know, we get up there. Looking back at the Earth is just humbling. I mean, even the pictures <laughs> that you see from space, I mean, I, I look at those, I was like, that, that's it. That's what it looks like. It's, it's blue. The colors are just exaggerated. Um, and just mm. so saturated. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Once you're up in space, you occasionally get some downtime, but your days are packed full of important assignments, from conducting research to building modules. For example, Kay Heyer and the crew on her space lab flight participated in various science experiments, focusing on the effects of microgravity on the brain and nervous system. 
while Joan Higginbotham and Garrett Reisman both contributed to building out and operating elements of the International Space Station. And on Mike Massimino's first mission, he spent nearly 15 hours over two spacewalks repairing the Hubble telescope. So you're out there in your own little spacesuit and everything around you is space. You know, you're no longer inside. You're, it's like going out to the playground and looking around. The whole sky opens up and, and in this case, it's the universe that opens up and the planet. You know, you can see Earth very clearly over your shoulder there. So the view is uh, just amazing. There's no window to restrict it. You just have the visor, which is relatively thin in front of you compared to the windows of the spaceship. And you're really experiencing it firsthand of what it's like to be out there. This is where the training from that giant swimming pool comes in handy. The environment that you're in, the space shuttle or the space station, you've trained on a mock-up of it in the water. So the handrails, the environment, all the structure around you is just like what you practiced on. Mike remembers what it's like to experience firsthand, something that had only been simulated down on Earth, putting on that EMU suit and floating outside of the station. That was uh, on my first flight, my spacewalking partner, and he goes out first and set everything up, and then I poked my head out and I looked at him. He was on a handrail, looking, you know, looking down at me, smiling, and, and I looked behind his head, and like we were over Africa or something like that, and I was like, holy cow, you know, how am I ever gonna get anything done out here? And then I looked straight ahead, and there was a handrail in front of me, right above the airlock, and I was like, I know, I know this. Yeah, this is just like in the pool. Leaving a vehicle while in space sounds more terrifying than exhilarating to me. But Mike assured me that he felt totally prepared for it. It was okay moving around. It was challenging. It required me to pay attention and stay engaged with my team just like it did during the training run. So and I think that's the thing to remember is that you're trained to do this stuff. Doing this stuff might seem crazy, but when you actually get out there and do it, it doesn't seem as crazy. You know, we're headed into season three of the show, and I feel like I have a pretty good handle on how to walk the walk and talk the talk of a real astronaut. But it has taken training of my own and an amazing team of costumers and consultants like Garrett who helped me get there. Seriously though, hearing about the dedication and drive and training it takes to become an astronaut is just incredible. Hats off to these people and their accomplishments. I can only imagine that all the years of rejected applications and hard work are worth it to lift off, float in microgravity, and look back on how far you've come, hundreds of miles above our planet. I want to thank our guests, former astronauts Garrett Reisman, Mike Massimino, Joan Higginbotham, and Kay Heyer, for sharing their inspiring stories. I also want to thank Joel Kinnaman for sharing his wild first-time piloting adventure with us. In the next episode, we're talking about food. Space food. We'll learn all about what astronauts eat and drink up in space, and if they actually like any of it. And we'll hear from a former NASA food expert about how far space food has come and what deep space travelers will need to keep themselves nourished during future extended missions. This is Chris Marshall, safe and sound Earthside. Thanks for listening to the For All Mankind podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed. And watch For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by At Will Media. Executive produced by Will Malnati. Produced by Chris Marshall, Ashley Taylor, Patrick Farrell, and associate producer Dominique Ibekwe. Production coordination by Latavia Young. Sound editing by the At Will Media team. Sound designed and mixed by 1000 Birds.